0: Good morning. Welcome to Cultivate. Um, We call this our family gathering because we believe that as a church, we're the family of God. My name is Jay. If I haven't got a chance to meet you, I'm the pastor here. And uh, we're going through a series called Exiles, uh, which is really based in the book of 1 Peter. And uh, that whole book and the way that we're seeing it is that uh, the, the church is a group of people who are God's exiled family in the world that's been sent there on His mission to show what He's like and to demonstrate His love by the way that we live. And so you may be under the impression this morning as you are coming here, if you're a visitor today or maybe even part of our church, that that the church consists of, it comprises of, mainly one or two hours on a Sunday morning. And that's really not the case. That one or two hours is really just the tip of the iceberg because it's the time when the family of God gathers together so that we all, as his family, would be equipped to go and do the work that God has us to do in the world. And, and so that's, that's kind of what we're talking about through this series, that we've been changed by Jesus, given a new identity by him, and then sent to really do everything we do with the understanding that we're there for him. Uh, and so you remember, remember last week that we brought up the question uh, what does it look like to encounter suffering? Because when you take up this calling to be the church, which I understand is very different from maybe our previous understandings of what it looked like to be the church, you will encounter some kind of abuse or suffering for the way that you live. And so how do we endure that? That's really the question that we asked last week. Um, and, and really what it came down to is, You can either endure it through trying to overcome it in your own strength, and your own power, by your own what we call an external washing, or you can overcome it by placing your faith and your trust in God's ark, Jesus, to really rise above the flood for you. There's one thing that will sustain you and another thing that won't. And and so we encourage you really to place your trust in Him to see you through that day. This week we're going to ask another question as Peter comes to it. And it's probably a question that if you've been a Christian for any length of period of time, you have at least asked this question. And if you haven't, then you probably haven't been a Christian for very long. Because it wasn't too long after I had become a Christian that I had asked this question. And the question is this. Would things just be a whole lot easier if I went back to the way my life used to be before I was a Christian? Have you asked that question? You don't have to raise your hand, but most of us, if we're being honest about what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus, we've come to some point in our journey where we said, this is getting really difficult and I'm not sure I want to go forward, it may be a whole lot easier to go back. And Peter's going to address, what is it that we do when we come to that question? How are we going to endure it? How are we going to move past it? And so with that question in mind, let's see what he has to say in this next section. He says, Therefore, since Christ suffered in the body, arm yourselves also. I'm on page uh, 841, by the way, if you're looking along in the Bibles underneath the seats. Uh, It's 1 Peter 4, uh, the the first uh, six verses. Arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in the body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Those are really non-believers, people that don't follow Jesus. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation. And because of it, they heap insults or they they abuse you. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to their body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. So what Peter is saying here is that all of us, if we've come to faith in Jesus, we have spent some time in our life, in the past, participating in the same kind of evil passions or desires that run rampant in the world. All of us have done that. And part of the reason that these people that Peter is speaking to are now experiencing persecution is because many of them have participated in these things and they had friends when they did it. And now, they're no longer participating in those same activities that their friends still do. And their friends are going, what's up with you? It used to be a whole lot of fun. I mean, we used to get drunk and, and go to these parties and do all this stuff and participate in all these things and gratify our, our desires anytime we darn well please. And now you refrain from all that stuff because of Jesus. What's going on? And you know, if you've lived the Christian life at all, and you've lived it among people that don't believe that story, they will question you for it, particularly if they knew you before you came to that resolution to follow Jesus in everything that you do. And if you hear that long enough, you will come to the conclusion, or at least ask the question, weren't things at least a little bit easier before I started to follow Jesus? This happened to me very not long after I started to follow him and and I remember it was my uh, senior year or ju- i 'm sorry my my junior year uh, before I came to faith in christ, and I was literally sitting around with some of my roommates and they had seen God start to pick off some of my friends one by one. you know what i 'm talking about like God started to do a work in all these different people's lives and they started to change radically. And we're like watching all of this happen like dominoes, you know? Like throughout the college campus, all these people who were living in a certain ways are now suddenly living unto God and for His will. And they're all going, I don't get it. What's going on? And so we're having a conversation about this over quite a few number of beers one night. And, um, and then... And, and, and one of my friends turns to me and goes, the same thing's going to happen to you. I know it. And I go, get out of here. That's never going to happen. I mean, I'm not going to change. I, I like the, my life the way it is. I mean, things are going to be fine. Don't worry about it. And then sure enough, six months later, God broke into my heart and completely changed me from the inside out. And, and the the hopelessness and the desperation that I felt in trying to search after the opinions of other people, suddenly I knew that I had his acceptance and approval. And I wasn't searching for those things anymore. And God released my heart in a whole new way that i had never known before. And I thought, I cannot help but worship and give my life to Jesus who has saved me and done all this for me. I mean, God sent his son in my place. How could I not give my life to a God who's done such gracious work on my behalf. And my life started to change. And you know what one of the first things happened after my, my life started to change? I, I wanted to hide from all those friends that I had made that declaration to that I would not change, right? And so suddenly I'd come back to the apartment and they'd be like, hey, what's up? I'm like, hey, I'll be in my room. Going <laughs> yeah. to study my Bible. I didn't want them to see the change because I thought that if they saw the change, and eventually they did, they'd go, I knew it. I knew it. You're just like the rest of them. In a sense, that was true. And so I lived in this dichotomy for a while where I I knew that God had changed me and there was no going back. And yet I thought to myself, "I, I, I don't want to press forward in that change because of what it'll say about me to my friends. Have you ever been there? understands what that's like. He's actually written us a letter to let us know how to deal with that situation because all of us have gotten to that point where we've asked ourselves that question. But I want to be honest with you too because many of us are under the deception that when you come to be a Christian and you start to follow Jesus that life suddenly gets easier and not harder. That suddenly... Everything starts to line up for you, and you get this picture of what the Christian life is—is like skipping through a field of daisies with a lollipop in one hand and a rainbow in the other. <laughs> and suddenly, the, everything just parts and is great for you and wonderful. I want to shatter that reality for you today. I'm sorry to do that. I'm not prevent- presenting a very um, attractive view of Christianity, maybe today, but it's a truthful one, and I think it's the better version. Because many of us we we come to Christian Christianity, we come to Jesus thinking that He's gonna take away all of our pains and all of our troubles and all the things that, that keep us down, and that's not the reality. The reality is you come to Jesus because you need him to live. He does not need you. You need him. And so we come to Him acknowledging our need for Him and then we live our lives as though He's given us uh, just enough and now we don't need Him at all from that point forward. And that's not the truth. God actually brings us to Him so that we would develop a dependency upon Him so that when He does bring those things into our life which we cannot handle, He's already given us the power source we need to overcome them. That preaches, right? <laughs> that's good news, yes? It should be. And so, God, you, you may be here this morning and life may be going fine, and that's great. But I want to be real with you and say that God may be using today as an opportunity to prepare you for what may be coming in a week or in a month or in a year. And I don't say that to scare you. I say that because how good and how gracious is God that He might have you here today to prepare you in such a way that when you go through that trial and you're tempted to look back, that you would say to Him, you declare to everyone around you, God has given me the power to overcome this because of His grace. That you might be a testimony to His work in your life when you go through something like that. God may be doing that for you today. And people who follow Jesus, the truth is, often have a harder life than they did before. But it's the best life there is. It really is. Because now you get to live in such a way that you actually get in tune with who God created you to be. So when you face all that stuff, you can move through it with His power, not just yours. So what will keep you from turning back? We're going to talk about a couple things here. Hopefully we'll get to all three. Um, but the first one is this. There's an acknowledgement that everyone worships something. This is going to be the first kind of tool that you have which prepares you to endure that question of should I turn back. Everyone worships something. Everyone. Peter's saying that every human who's ever lived, this is a really profound statement. Think of the implications for this. He says that every human that's ever lived falls into one of two camps. I mean, think of that. That's a blanket statement right there. Everyone falls into one of two camps. They either live for their own human desires, which, by the way, are evil, or they live for the will of, of God. Everyone. Another way to say that would be to say everyone lives their life for something or someone. And so I'd like you to entertain this in your minds. What are you living your life for? What are you building your life upon? What is the center? What is the fulcrum of your life? What, is, what does it revolve around? Some of you are building your lives upon things that cannot save you. That are not powerful enough to transform you. That will not make you a new person. But you live your life and you give yourself away to it as if they will. And they will not. The funny thing is that God gives us good things in life because our hearts are... He loves us, right? And so He gives us good things in our lives. Because He's a good Father and He provides for His children. But in our rebelliousness, we take those good things and we go, that's great, God. Thank You so much for it. I'm going to worship it instead of You. I'm going to use that to find my identity. I'm going to place it in my life as the ultimate thing in order to replace You and Your presence in my life. And we make created things into the Creator and we worship it above God. So we talked about idols before, but I want to give you a definition because I think it's important. It's taking anything good, even things that God has given us, and making them a God that we look to in place of Him. God gives us something. Often it's a good thing. We say thank you very much, and then we use it in replacement of Him. It's a great example of this that happens in Isaiah 44. God's pointing out just the, the foolishness of this kind of thinking. He goes, there's a guy that goes into the woods and he cuts down a tree. Who do you think made the tree? Right? I want to answer that question, but it's kind of obvious from the way that God's framing it. And he cuts down the tree and he drags it to his camp and he cuts the tree in half. Takes all the limbs off of it, cuts it in half, sets up these two things. With one half, he chops it into firewood and he cooks bread on it. And then with the other half, he forms it into a statue and then he bows down with his piece of bread and says, thank you for making this bread. That's idolatry. Do you see how foolish that is? It's saying one half is is the thing that I'm going to use to make the bread. The other half is what provided the first half. Now, who, who's the one that made the tree? <laughs> God. Why are we, and yet that's what we do, right? We take the good things that God has given us, we, we, we use them for our life, and then we attribute the, the goodness of that thing and what it gives to us to what's created and not the Creator that made it. That's idolatry. So let's have a, a, a bit of a dialogue here, okay? I'm going to ask you a question. You can fire back some answers at me. How do you know what you worship? What do you spend your money on? Money and time. Yeah. It. If it's funny because it, if your calendar and your checkbook, I can tell what's important to you. Every time. What do you spend your money on? What do you spend your time doing? Yeah. What else? How do you know? Yeah. Yeah, what happens when it gets threatened? Oftentimes when I'm meeting with people and we're talking about life or maybe it's a counseling situation, I know I've touched on an idol when somebody goes, you can't go there. (laughs) Yeah, I know I can't go there because that's the thing that's holding you back. That's the thing that you're clinging to. And if I shake the ground of it, suddenly your whole world is wrecked. Right? Some of you depend on things like that. And when they're threatened, you go, My whole world is falling apart. And I know people who can lose their job and go, God is my provider. I don't need to fear. And I know people who lose their job and go, I don't know who I am anymore. You see the difference? One person is threatened and idle, and when the idol shakes, their whole world falls apart. The other person can sustain through that kind of threatening. What else? Yeah, what do you run to when you're in pain? What is the thing that satisfies you for a time when you need something to satisfy you? Some of you run to shopping. Just being honest. There's a difference between shopping because you need something and shopping because the, the shopping in and of itself provides you with gratification. Right? Here's how you know. Do you feel better after you go shopping? A little bit. Thank you for being honest. Yeah, right. Yeah. That's, and, and by the way... Um, we, we often talk about credit card debt as being a product of people's bad financial management, and sometimes it is. But sometimes people's credit card debt is a product of their idol worship because they're looking to created things to supply them with what only God can, can supply in sufficiency, right? Guys, we aren't immune to this. I mean, what are some of the things that we shop for in order to feel better about ourselves? What's that? Yeah, H T V. How big is your TV? <laughs> Mine's 1080i. Come on. I got 600 channels. I watch four of them, but I got 600. <laughs> All right, people? I love the look on people's face when I tell them I still have rabbit ears. Sometimes I tell people who have cable just to see what their reaction is because sometimes they're like, yeah, I got HBO and I got Showtime and I got this I got, I got... Six channels, and four of them work <laughs> yeah, right, yeah <laughs> yeah, 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 food, yeah, yeah, we have a have a category for it, right, comfort, food. You know when they create a category for food that people are running to it for the reason that we say it is there for? If it's comfort food, people are probably running to it for comfort. Do you run to it for comfort? Is food a good thing? Should we enjoy it? Absolutely. I mean, sometimes when somebody makes a great meal, for me it's like a worship event. I'm like sitting down at the table and I'm going, thank you God that you've given somebody the ability to cook food this way. Because it's phenomenal. And I love it. Yeah, right. But we can run to food in replacement of them too. So when we feel sad or we feel lonely, we just fill that gap with whatever food we love most. Right? That's an idol. We run to it for worship. Some of us do that all the time. You guys have hit on a lot of them. I would ask this, what is it that you give credit to or what is it that you're, you have gratitude over when things go well in your life? What do you point to when things go well? That can often be an idol too. You think, man, my kids turned out great. I must be a phenomenal parent. <laughs> it was obviously my education of them and my teaching and my grace and my patience and I'm just a wonderful person that raised them up to be this. You know, you're worshiping yourself, Right? I would say here's a, a few kind of fruit of, work, of idol worship. Here's, here's, so if you've seen these patterns in your life, you may want to check the area that, that is bringing about these fruit. The first one is this, anxiety and insecurity. What are you anxious over? What, what brings you insecurity? And you think, oh, I don't know if that's going to make it. See, the reason that we're often anxious around certain areas of our life is because we're looking to them for things that they can't provide. And we intuitively know that we really can't trust them to save us. And yet we give ourselves away to them anyway. Some of us look to our job that way. We go into work on Monday morning going, please don't take this away from me, God. Or I better... Work really hard because I'm really anxious that something might happen, a co worker might say something about me, and I might lose my job, and therefore no one will provide for me. You hear what you're saying to God? Sometimes we can look to our spouse that way too. We know that they can't fulfill us, we know that we're there to give as much as we get, if not more. Because, men, we're supposed to lay our lives down for our wives, and yet sometimes we look to them to be the thing that fulfills us. Right? And yet we know that they can't, and so we're constantly anxious or insecure about our spouse because we think that they should build us up, and when they do, our lives rise on their opinion, but then when they don't, we feel terrible about ourselves. Some of us can look to our kids that way. We think, if I just raise up the best kids who ever were to get on every you know, national honor society and every program and into the right colleges and off to the right places and the right job, then I will be a success. And every time they fail you, which they will, you go, oh, I don't know if my dream is going to come true, and we get anxious about it. Another one is this, that... If you're placing your, your worship in an idol, often we become very defensive about that idol. Because we feel the need to defend it, because in in our heart of hearts, we know that it cannot defend itself. Right? And so we stick up for it and we we, we put a fence around it. We guard against it. And we say, You can't touch this, you can't go there. There's a great picture of this in Jeremiah 10. Um, when the prophet, as he's being moved to talk about these things by God, says that that idols are like a scarecrow in a cucumber field. I love that imagery. Think of of the scarecrow and how foolish it would be to worship at the foot of a scarecrow. Why? Because you're the one that needs to carry it out into the field for it to do its job. You're the one that needs to cut the wood and construct the thing and, and make it stand up. And you... Better put it into the ground you know, long enough so that it actually stands up and piles enough rocks around it so the thing doesn't fall over. Why? Because they're prone to fall over. That's the reason, right? In the same way, our idols are prone to fall over and we constantly feel the need to prop them back up, prop them back up. Yeah, we'll get to that in a second. Yeah, God knocks them down. In His grace, He knocks them down. So, this leads Peter to talk, uh, to kind of use an illustration of what it looks like to worship these. Oh, I'm sorry, there's, there's another one that I wanted to hit on. If you constantly feel like you're a failure all the time, then chances are you're worshiping at the altar of an idol. Because the idol will always say to you, I need more. I need more. And so, give more of your time. Give more of your resources. Shop more here because the more that you do, the better you'll feel. And every time you do, you feel good for a time. And then after a while, you go, I wouldn't wear that shirt. Or I've gone through every channel on the television and none of them are satisfying me. Gosh, I feel like a failure. Maybe I need a bigger TV (laughs) with more channels and higher definition, right? Do you feel like a failure? Sometimes we, there are times when we're living up to an image that we think that our parents expect of us. And we can be controlled by that idol long after they're gone, by the way. And you can live your life thinking, this is what my father would want of me because I long, I need, I have never heard him say, well done, I'm proud of you. And so we try to live up to this expectation that will never satisfy us. And we constantly feel like a failure because it's always there. It's always pressing on us. And we go, I can't get out from underneath this thing. It's crushing me. We can, yeah. Yeah. I want you to feel the weight of this for a time. Because we're going to release that weight in a moment. But I I, I want you to be thinking of your life in this way first. Because you need to be able to see that what's going to sustain you when you say, maybe I should turn back, is there is a better God out there to worship. That's the only thing that will keep you from turning back. So, um, Peter says this, For you spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it's strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. What he's saying basically is this. We all think that worship is a private matter, that we come to worship on Sunday morning, and we worship when we're in the box, and then when we leave the box, we are no longer worshipers. And Peter's saying, no, 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 you don't understand. You worship all the time, and your worship always affects the way that you live. Everything that you do, every interaction that you have is all a product of your worship. It always shows up, and that's why the the, the second thing that we're going to look at is that our lives always reveal what we worship. They always do. Our lives are like a billboard that display what we place our worth in. So, everything that we place our worth in, it shows up in our life. And it's like a billboard being dis- displayed above us. This is what I trust in. This is what I hope for. This is what I've placed my, my identity in. And many of us try to hide our idols from others because intuitively we know they're not powerful enough. But all you need to do is spend a little bit of time with someone to know what it is. Many of you, you know what it is for your spouse. Right, Because you spend a lot of time with them. And sometimes you don't want to tell them because, again, you'll, you'll aggravate an idol and they'll freak out on you. It's funny, though. Sometimes we, we know what our idols are. We know that they're displayed in our life, and yet we say to God, God, could you just bless it? Could you just protect it? Because I know it can't stand on its own, so please just... Put a hedge of protection around it, right? Some of us pray that for our jobs. God, will you just... Whatever happens, please don't let me lose my job, right? And and we try to include God in it. And Listen, there's nothing wrong with praying to God about our jobs. We should be doing that. But we shouldn't be placing it above God and then going, God, will you just come and, and reinforce my idol, please? Because if this falls, then I don't know who I am anymore. And so I kind of need you as a puppet to do that, but I'm not really placing my faith in you. So what does God do in response to that? Does He bless it? Actually, sometimes He tears it down. Paul says this in Romans 1. He says, "...they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served created things." rather than the Creator who is forever praised, Amen. And then he says this, because of this, because we've all exchanged the truth of God for a lie, God does this. He gives them over to the sinful desires of their hearts. God turns us over. He, in His grace, He allows us to experience the fruit of our worship so that we would know that it cannot sustain us so that we'd know how lousy a God it is. The tragedy is, though, that many times when God does this, we react with further idolatry. Isn't that interesting? God, in His grace, He comes to us and He says, I'm going to allow them to see the product of their worship. And then when we see the product, we, we react in, in probably one of two ways. The first way is we say, well... It's not sustaining me at its current level, therefore I need more of it, right? And so if alcohol is the thing that kind of makes the world a little bit easier of a place to to live in, but it's not doing the job, then I need more of it. That's where alcohol comes from, or alcoholism, right? It, It is the continual giving yourself away more and more to something because you know that at current level it cannot sustain you and so I'll give more and I'll give more and I'll give more. Some of us uh, look to sex in this way to be perfectly honest with you. Is sex a good thing that God's given us to enjoy in marriage? Absolutely. But we take that very thing that God has done good for us and we say, That is the the place where I feel most loved. That is the the time when I feel most cherished. And so we run to it over and over again, and when our spouse can't sustain our need for it, we look elsewhere, whether it's to a person or to a website. We give ourselves over and over and over again, right? Right? We've already talked about food as is, is being this. Sometimes we can use work in the same way. When I go to work, I feel good about myself because I'm accomplishing things. And so we spend more time at work and more time at work, and pretty soon we become a workaholic. Because work is the thing which is giving us the thing that we need. And when we're not away from work, we realize how empty a, a pursuit it is. So we just think, I'll just fill up more of my schedule with it. We can do the same thing with sports teams, can't we? How depressed are we when football season ends? And we think, "Man, I just cannot wait for March to roll around so I can get some college basketball in me because without something to watch in the evenings or on Sundays, I just feel empty." It may sound trivial, but are you running to it? What do you run to when you're in pain? Second thing we can do is this, is that once we figure out that the thing that we're running to can no longer satisfy us, we go, okay, I realize it. That's an idol. I'm not going to run to it anymore. And then we replace it with another one, with a more socially acceptable one, right? And so many of you have spent years in your careers and, and you're thinking, man, it's just not satisfying me the way that I thought it would. I'm not rising up the ladder Or even when I did, it's just, I'm getting the paycheck, but I still feel empty inside. It's not like anybody's coming to me and going, wonderful job, you're such a great person. And because of that, I just feel like I'm not getting anywhere in life. Therefore, I've got these kids, and they have more potential than I do. And so rather than give myself away to the idol of career, I'm going to give myself away to the idol of parenting. And let me tell you, in New Jersey, children are one of the most rampant idols in our society. Just look at the way that we spend our time and our money. Is, is it bad for our children to be part of activities and to have a full life and schedule and to be have friends and, and be interacting? No, of course not. Those are all great things. But how many times have you said to yourself, if my child doesn't play this sport, he's not going to be accepted? If he doesn't make every single practice he won't be a great baseball player. And if he's not a great baseball player, his self-esteem is going to be damaged. And if his self-esteem is going to be damaged, he won't turn out right. And if he doesn't turn out right, then I'm going to feel like a failure as a parent. Have you ever played that game? That'll kill you. Why? Because you're running to that idol to give you what only God can give you. You can reverse it, too, by the way. You can say, I invested years in my kids, and they didn't, you know, they, they're out of the house now and, and, and they're living their lives, and I, I, I have no control over the way they turn out anymore. And you may feel good or bad about the way that they did, but you say, I, I don't have them to invest in anymore, and I feel empty inside, and so now I'm going to give myself away to this. Whether it would be work or an activity or relationship or whatever. There, there are good things that God gives us <clears throat> that we should enjoy. Right? There are good things that He brings into our life that that we should love and cherish. It's not bad to love your kids. Love them and give your your lives to to see them grow and, and hopefully to grow into the image of Christ. But don't look to them to give you something that only Jesus can. And that's what we do. We give ourselves away. They're good things that we've made the ultimate thing and we've perverted what God's given us. So here's where we turn the corner. This is not the life that Jesus died to give us. Peter says, Jesus died to give us so much more than this. He says, therefore, since Christ suffered in the body for you, that's the, the underlying message, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in the body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his life for earthly, evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. In other words, Jesus suffered in the body so that you would have the same power to defeat the idols in your life that raised Jesus from the dead. So that when others plunge headlong into the worship of your boss and you're tempted to do the same thing, you will be able to stand your ground and go, you know what? I'm not going to do it. I don't need to do it because I will not worship Him because I don't need to worship Him. I don't need to get His approval and His attaboy to feel good about myself. I've got it already. So the person whose life is correctly worshiping will demonstrate that they aren't mastered by the idols that wreak havoc in our world. There will be a difference in the way that you live, because of the person that you're worshiping. If this is not happening for you, then the reason is because you've bought into the wrong story. Because our worship is always a product of the greater story that we believe. That's the third point. Always. Our worship is always a product of the greater story that we believe. So the only way that you can change your worship is to believe and to live in a different story. That's the only way. We need a new story. So what you worship is based on the story that you believe. And so what Peter does here at the very end of this passage that we're looking at is that he brings up the example of people who had previously died before the ones that he's talking to, and in order to say their lives were informed by a different story. That's the reason that they were able to stand. They knew a different story. So let's see what that story is. But they will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this reason, the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body. In other words, people may say all kinds of bad things about them while they're on earth. And yet... They live according to God in regard to their spirit. There's a freedom there. There's a life there. there. He's saying there are men who lived who were judged harshly by humans because they didn't fall into the same desires but lived according to God and for His glory with His Spirit in them doing the work. In other words, their lives revealed what they worshipped, right? So what is it that Peter says, is the greater story which gives them the power to do this. What is it? What does he say? What story is it? Yeah, it's the Gospel. The Gospel is the only story that reprograms our life. And so he's saying, we should be people who build everything upon that story. To to let it be the center of our lives. The thing that we look to for our identity. The reality is that many of us have a different story informing our lives, and that leads us to a different God that we worship at the altar of. And so we say things like, well, because this happened to me when I was little, therefore I will never trust anyone ever again. Or I was taught when I was little that if I work hard and I make a lot of money, then I'm going to be supremely happy. Therefore, I will work like crazy. Or I was a social outcast as a kid and no one really accepted me for who I was. Therefore, I can never not be in a relationship because I need, I need to feel someone's love in order to feel like I'm okay. Because I didn't feel okay then. What's the greater story that's informing your life? There's a great story that happens for the Israelites. And you may remember it. When they are led out of Egypt in slavery by God to this place called Mount Sinai, and they all gather around the mountain. And God, who is the one who led them out, descends on the mountain in a cloud. And and Moses, their leader, goes up to meet with God in order to get instructions from God about how they should now live, that God has brought them freedom from their slavery you remember what happens while he's up there? What's that? Yeah. They, they 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 go throughout the entire camp and they go, hey, all the gold that God gave us when we left Egypt, I mean, there are all kinds of things. God had given them the ability to plunder all the houses that they were a part of and gave, given them all this stuff so that they could live on it once they exited the land. He said, I wanted you to gather up all that gold because we're going to melt it all down and we're going to form ourselves an idol. And they formed this golden calf out of all the jewelry which God gave them. And they set it up on an altar. And what do they say? This is the God who led us out of Egypt. It's crazy, right? I mean, if you know the story, you're going, what in the world are they doing you just flip a few pages back, people. Didn't you remember the, the Red Sea when you were like at the shoreline and there was nowhere to go? What, was your, what were your earrings and your necklaces doing for you then? Nothing. And God said, you don't even need to do anything. All you need to do is be still and watch the salvation of the Lord come today. And they did, right? Right? And they watched it happen. They watched the sea part. And they walked through on dry ground. And after they got through, the the waters came back again and defeated every one of their foes. That's their story. Why are they worshiping a golden calf? Because they forgot their story. Here's the thing. We do the same thing. Right? We forget our story. And so we get a great job, and then we think, man, all of this that I've gotten, it's a result of my hard work and education. Or God brings a good spouse into our life, and we think, man, it must have been something I did, you know? I mean, I must have been really charming back in the day to win myself someone like that. Or we raise our kids, and our kids come out great, and they're... they're, They're wonderful people that are full of grace and truth and love the Lord. And we think, man, is that a result of my good teaching? That's idolatry, right? God is the only one who saves. God is the only one who provides. God is the only one who transforms. And anywhere we believe a different story is where we'll see the seeds of idolatry start to pop up from the ground. Some of you know my story Others of you don't, but when I was a kid, um, I lived in a neighborhood that had a lot of kids in it. Great thing, right? I mean, we had a ton of neighbors. All of them had young kids, it seemed like. And out of that, it seemed like 80% of them were boys. Phenomenal situation to grow up in. And ha- I mean, when you can feel the whole wiffle ball team when you're growing up as a boy, that is like, that's heaven right there, you know? And it's right outside your door. Like we lived on a cul-de-sac, and it's right there, you know? Wonderful thing. But here's the thing. I, I was kind of the runt of the neighborhood. I was a, a couple years younger than just about everybody else in their families. And so what did I do? I, I tried over and over and over and over again to be good at sports, to be funny, to be engaging, to be cool, all these things, because I'm thinking over and over again, I need to be this. And if I'm this, then people will love me, and they'll respect me, and they'll think I'm great, and they'll want me on their team, and they'll pick me first, and on and on and on and on. Can you see how it's a good situation? That in my heart, I'm turning into an idol, and I'm giving myself away to it over and over again. And the truth, they, they, Sometimes they could be very cruel, as kids can be, and they would shut me out of of events or games. And so I would go through massive stretches of my early childhood life saying, I'm just going to hide away in my room because it's easier than going to face the ridicule and trying to live up to their standards. And so this can pop itself up in life even today. Because if I'm not careful, I will make decisions and do things as a leader of this church which make you like me better if I'm not careful, I can lead you in ways where you'll think, man, Jay is really respectable. What a spiritual guy he is. What a great leader. What an engaging speaker he is. (laughs) Yeah. And sometimes the conversation needs to be when we get home, um, don't put your trust in that. Because I'll be asking all the questions. Was it, was it good enough in this area? Or, or, or did this happen? Or how do you think people reacted? And sometimes she's got to say to me, look, just drop it. Don't you realize that Jesus is your sufficiency? Right? I mean, th- this is the lesser story that's going on in my life. And if I'm not careful and I don't counter it with a greater story, it can be the one that influences everything that I do. I can start to spend more time with people that I find relationally easy. Or I can hide from difficult conversations or from conflict, which always happens in a church, by the way. And I can choose not to pursue those things in love because really I'm just that little boy in my bedroom that's trying to hide himself from the world so that others don't really see that I'm not as cool as they think I am. That's my lesser story. So how do we counter that? Well, it's when I'm believing the Gospel that I'm set free. And I know that if I'm dealing with guilt or hiding or, or from conflict or feeling shame or not giving my time away to others freely, that I'm starting to slip back into that lesser story. Now you have them too. And any time your lesser story is trumping God's greater story, the evidence will be idolatry every single time. So what story are you basing your worship on? According to God, all of us do this, and that's the reason that we need the Gospel to be preached according to Peter, so that we'd be free from the false stories that enslave us, so that we can stand before Jesus and be judged according to His life and not ours. So how do you experience freedom of the gospel? How do you change your story? Many of you have seen my, uh, my sword here. So I'm going to turn it on for you in a way that doesn't give you a seizure. They give these, well, they don't give them away. They're very expensive, but they sell them at Disney World to little kids. And grandmothers love to buy them for those little kids <laughs> while their parents aren't looking and then send them out to their hotel rooms to smash everything, right? (laughs) So this has been sitting behind our couch for about six months, and Caleb doesn't realize it's there. Um, What does Peter say? He says, arm yourself with the Gospel. Arm yourself. How good is this bad boy if it's tucked away in the couch, if trouble comes? I don't know how much good it is when I have it, but... (laughs) Run with me on the imagery for a second, okay? If you have a weapon, but you do not have access to it, how good is that weapon? If, if you buy a gun, but you keep it in a case and you have no access to it, when a robber comes into your home, how good is that weapon? Not very good, right? Here's the thing. Some of us use the Gospel as if we have purchased it, and yet we have no idea how to wield it when danger comes. We have no idea how how to actually use it to defend ourselves when attacks come. And so it sits there on the corner and gains dust, and we think, yeah, I'm a Christian, and yet we give ourselves away to all these idols and we believe all these alternate stories, and there it is sitting on the shelf, the most powerful weapon that's been ever given to you in your entire life, and you choose not to wield it. Right? Right? What does it look like to pick up the Gospel and to defend yourself with it? Right, I'll put this away before I hurt myself. (laughs) Gospel isn't just the thing that initiates the Christian life. It's the story that informs every day of your life. The Gospel is the weapon that makes you ready to face all the false stories that come your way. So arm yourselves at all times with it. So when you feel uh, this temptation to be accepted and approved of, and you want to give yourself away to the God of being approved by other people, what do you do? You say, regardless of whether or not they give me approval, I know that God approves me. How do I know that? Because God, who, who had His perfect Son sent to the earth, who had all the acceptance and the approval of the Father? Who had who, who had a perfect relationship with Him? He died on a cross for my sins, for my separation from Him, and He rose again on the third day and has power over death. Therefore, I know that I am His. There is nothing separating me from the Father. I have His love and His approval. So even if people reject me, I don't need their approval to feel okay about myself. You see how this works? Do you feel the gravity of it? Believe a new story and your life will change. You may be seeking significance and think, I don't know if my life is going to turn out for anything that's worth anything. We may feel insignificant in life. Men, I know this is a struggle for you because you're men. And you've been created to have impact in the world. And sometimes you feel as though you don't know if you can see that impact and so you become hopeless. How do we know we're significant? Because God gave the most significant person who had ever lived, Jesus Christ, The the Lord, the King, the, the Lord of lords and King of kings, the Savior of the world, God incarnate, came and gave His life for you. Are you significant? In the eyes of the Father, you are more significant than you ever will realize. And so when you face times when you go, I don't know if I'm significant, you can speak that truth back into your life and go, I know that I am because of what Jesus has done for me. Some of you may be facing financial insecurity and you go, I don't know if we have any way out of this, and you're tempted to turn to the gods of debt and credit cards and say this is going to be the thing which ransoms me from slavery and gets me across to the other side. What's the new story that we need to believe? That God, in the form of Christ, the richest person who ever lived became poor so that in Him we, who were once poor, can become rich. And we are now the richest people who have ever lived And God who did not withhold from us His own Son, how will He not also along with Him give us everything that we need? Your job is not your provider. God is... What if you walked in the reality of that story every single day? You'd walk into work and go, I'm here for God's purposes, not for my desires. I don't need this place to be okay. I am okay because of what He said I am, and I can now have an impact in my job because of who He's made me to be. What about if you're facing temptation to fall into sin, and you know that this has ruled over you time and time again? and you're tempted to give yourself away to it again. What's the story you need to believe? It's the same story, right? That God created you to to live apart from sin, and He actually died for your sin, so that you'd have power over sin. So what if you sat down at your computer, and when you were tempted to go to that same website for the hundredth time, God reminded you through His Spirit that what you're about to do, Jesus already knew about and he already died for it. To forgive you for what you're about to do. You say, well, yeah, if I remembered that, I probably wouldn't do it. That's the point. Right? What happens then when you fall and you feel shame and you go, man, I, I, I did that thing again. What's the story I need to believe? That God actually paid the price for the sin that you just committed, and you have nothing standing in the way of you coming back to His grace. It's there for you again, and you're loved and cherished because you're His Son, not because of what you do. And so come back to Him and run back to Him with open arms, knowing that there's nothing that hinders you from Him. You see? Do you see? Story is everything. If you know and you believe the story, you will wield that story in every situation and say, I will not bow down to these alternate gods because I have a new God and a new story, and that informs who I am and how I live. I'd like you, as we just end very quickly, and I, I know that I've gone a little bit long, but I... I still feel strongly that I need to encourage you to do this. I want you to resolve to do two things in response to this message if if the Spirit is prompting you to do so. And we're going to stand in a moment as a recognition that we're responding to him. Um, But the first thing is this. I want you to go to someone this week. And those of you that are in life groups, I'd like you to go and share your story along with some of the idols that you think have been produced by that story. And some of you may know that story, and so you could kind of give the shorthand version of it. But I I want you to be honest with your group about what are some of the things that you've used to replace God in your life. And please believe the Gospel enough not to hide or to minimize those things. Sometimes we, you know, a lot of people say the, the biggest obstacle and part of, of a life group is that you need time to open up and to trust one another. I think the biggest obstacle to being vulnerable in a group is that, you don't, that, that you're not willing to put down the idols in your life. I think that's one of the biggest obstacles, just to be perfectly honest with you. And we're so concerned about what other people are going to think about us or what, we're, what they're going to do with that information. And so we think, I'm going to hold back going to high. I'm going to minimize. I'm going to share surface-level things. The Bible says to confess your sins one to another because that's the only way you're going to find freedom in it. Believe the gospel enough to know that you don't need to get the approval of your group members. Know that you have it in Jesus and you want to be free from the things that are holding you back from Him. And so share. And here's what I want you to do as, as life groups, okay? You who are in those groups and listening to people as they confess these things, don't just say, oh, that's too bad. I'll be praying for you on that one. Because that's what we do, right? We say, oh, man, I'd never struggle with that one, so... Uh, Awkward, you know? (laughs) What if you began to speak the story back into their life as God enables you to do so? Right? How much freedom would it bring to that person to hear the Gospel applied to their hearts again? That's what we want, right? We want Gospel-fluent people who are able to wield the sword of our story And when we see a brother or sister believing a different story, we want to bring them back in and go, don't you realize you're living under a different banner? Would you do that in your groups for one another? The second thing is this. We're going to go to God in prayer. We're going to go to Him in prayer. Um, Caleb, when he's he's my two-and-a-half-year-old son, uh, when he would get into situations where he knew he, he couldn't help himself anymore previously, like let's say six months, a year ago, he would just struggle at it and struggle at it and struggle at it. It's like he's got a, a toy and he's trying to get the top off and he just can't do it and he's oh, he's struggling at it. And, and he wouldn't come for help. No matter what he did, he'd just keep going at it and keep going at it. And so we'd have to go into him and go, hey, buddy, what's going on? You know, can, can Daddy help you? And he'd go... Uh, and he wasn't really good with his pronouns and that, so he'd go, I help you. I help you. I've noticed one of the things that he's grown up and now, you know, becoming, uh, moving into, into, you know, a larger kid at this point. Um, Yeah, pronoun stage. When he gets to that point where he's stuck, what does he do? He walks into the, the kitchen rather than waiting for Dad to come to him. And he goes, Daddy, help me. I need your help. What if we did that same thing? What if rather than sitting around, waiting around for something to change in our lives, what if we are the ones that got up off the floor and went into the kitchen where our dad is, and we go, Dad, can you help me? And One of the signs that you're starting to overcome the idols in your life is that rather than running to the idol, you run to God in prayer because you know that He can sustain you. So I want to say this to you. If God is speaking to you this morning, if He's revealing something to you in terms of an idol in your life, would you, would you codify, would you, would you uh, make the, the, the stance to say, I, I'm going to do that this week. I'm going to talk to someone. And I'm going to talk to God this morning because there's something in my heart I need to be released from. If that's you, will you stand with me and pray? Because I want to pray for you. But I think there is something unique in in the standing that as we stand and we say, yes, this is something I need to help over, it it does something in our hearts when when we decide to to show it with our, our bodies. So would you stand with me if that's you and I'll pray with you. Father, the first thing I want to do as a group is that I want to confess to You that there are things in our lives that we look to as a Savior, as a sustainer, as a provider that cannot do any of those things. And so, God, we lift them to You. Rather than lifting them to You to ask You to bless them, we lift them to You to ask You to release us from them. And God, Uh, I ask that the gospel would be the thing that helps us to do that. I pray, Father, that our story as your family would bring us freedom, would bring us change, would bring us hope when we've had none. And so, Daddy, help us as we stand together, come into our hearts and change us Release us by the power of the gospel so that we could be whole in you and we could go into this world as your exiled people and have an impact for the sake of the kingdom. I pray that you'd make it so by your spirit. We pray for power and we thank you, God, for it. In Jesus' name, amen.